Tonight, we are going to be in Acts chapter 7 to conclude our series, Church on Fire. Acts chapter 7, we're going to be looking at the life of Stephen, or really more so the death of Stephen, as we talk about the power of passion, the power of passion. So let's read Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54. This is God's word, and it says... Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. Now, who are the they? They are the religious officials, the religious council. Stephen, we're going to get into it in a moment, but he's placed before them. He's being accused of blasphemy and they are absolutely enraged by the sermon that Stephen just gave. They were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, verse 55, was full of the Holy Spirit and he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they were stoning Stephen. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we open up your word, we pray that this wouldn't just be another Bible study where we simply just come here and learn. I pray that this would be an opportunity to hear from you. It would be an opportunity to encounter your presence. Lord, we know that your word is living, that your word is powerful, that it desires to speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would do just that. And fathers, we're going to talk about suffering tonight. I pray for those that are suffering in any form. Here tonight, Jesus, that you would bring comfort to them. We pray these things in your name. And everyone said, Amen. Well, tonight as we conclude Church on Fire, what we've been doing is we've been looking at some of the key elements of the early church. Our first week, we talked about the power of the early church, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the power of the Holy Spirit, the dunamis, the dynamite powers. We looked at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the early church and empowered them for the work and the ministry. Then we saw another key element was the power of prayer, that when God's people come together and we pray together, God does really cool things. And we should expect God to move when we come together and we pray. Last week, we looked at the priority of the early church the different priorities of the word, of prayer, of fellowship, of community. Tonight, though, we are going to look at the passion of the early church and the power of passion. Now, I want you to note, though, that passion is a word that we often think of as an enthusiastic or a charismatic leader or a charismatic and enthusiastic person. But that's not what I'm referring to. That's not the type of passion that I'm referring to when we look at the early church. The type of passion that I'm talking about is the type of passion that is derived from the root word in Latin, passio, which means to suffer or to endure. 
In other words, the passion of the early church wasn't a zeal. It wasn't necessarily an enthusiasm, although many of them had that. No, the passion of the early church was the ability to endure suffering. That was the passion that they would face persecution and that they would be able to endure it. That's why we historically call this week that we're celebrating Passion Week. Because as Jesus, that week, his last week, he had to exercise the ability to endure horrendous suffering from the hands of men. And not only the horrendous suffering of physical suffering, but as we remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, emotional suffering, spiritual suffering, mental suffering. That is why we refer to this week as Passion Week. But it was Jesus himself that promised that he would not be the only one who would suffer. That in fact, all of us would experience a sense of suffering in this world. And I think oftentimes we forget that. New believers might come to the Lord and they come to church and we're always talking about the high mountaintop experiences with God. And sometimes we forget that Jesus himself promised suffering. It was the night of his betrayal while he's gathered together with his disciples. Jesus says this in John 16 verse 33. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He promises suffering. He promises difficulty. He promises tribulation. He promises hardship. But oftentimes, this is not the promise that we have on our coffee mugs or on our t-shirts or that we sing about. But nevertheless, it was a promise given from Jesus himself that we would have to experience a sense of suffering. So the question is, how do we deal with it? How do we face suffering? When life isn't going how we thought it would go, what do we do? What is our response? How do we prepare for suffering? What is, it, what is our worldview for suffering? You see, we've been going over a series with a youth talking about just this, about suffering. And one of the things we talked about is that the different worldviews given for suffering, they're pretty lame. Atheism's view of suffering or a naturalistic view of suffering is that suffering's just this kind of cog in the wheel that you either need to forget about it or you need to fix it. That's That's their worldview of how to deal with suffering. Meanwhile, you have a new age or a Buddhist worldview. Their worldview is that suffering is just an illusion. Therefore, numb out about it, forget about it, kind of that same kind of thing, move on. But it's not really real at all. That's the Buddhist or the new age view of suffering. Then you've got a moral view of suffering, which says that you're suffering, that I'm suffering because we've done something bad. We've done something to deserve suffering. But that's not the worldview that the Bible Bible gives of suffering. No, the Bible paints a very clear picture of suffering that it's terrible, that it's not fun, that it's difficult, that it's hard. The Bible doesn't try to wrap a pretty little bow on it, but it does promise that in the midst of suffering, God does come close. And that only by the power of God, he is able to bring beauty out of ashes. He is able to inject purpose into pain. He is able to use suffering for his glory. But don't fall into the lie. God is not the source of suffering. 
No, we see Jesus himself suffered there on Passion Week. And, and here we're going to see Stephen suffering at the hands of men. And as we consider suffering, or as we consider the passion of the early church, I want you to consider the three marks of a passionate believer that we see in the life of Stephen. Number one, Stephen was a man of conviction. He was a man of confidence and he was a man of compassion. These are three marks of a passionate believer. In other words, a believer that is enabled to endure suffering or difficulty or hardship. One of conviction, confidence and compassion. So let me paint this picture of exactly what's going on, though. It's the early church began and now it's kind of booming. There's a lot of growth going on with the early church, so much so that there's a dispute that's going on among these group of people that feel neglected. And so what the apostles do is they actually set up a leadership committee, in a sense, these deacons to oversee this group of people that felt neglected. Now, these deacons, they had to be, quote, a good reputation, full of the spirit, and full of wisdom. And one of these people was Stephen. We learn that Stephen himself was described as a man full of grace and full of power. And he was doing great wonders and great signs among the people. Stephen's ministry had gotten so popular, in fact, that they, he was now under attack. A group of people, many groups of religious leaders were now against Stephen. And so what they do is they actually arrest him. They bring him before the Jewish council or the Sanhedrin, and they are condemning him and accusing him of blasphemy. And in the midst of all these people, this man, Stephen, stands up and he gives this staggering sermon. And if you read this sermon here in Acts chapter 7, this was a man not only full of the Holy Spirit, but he was a man of the word. He is, takes them from Abraham to Joseph to Moses to David to Solomon all the way to Jesus and shows how these same Jewish leaders, these same Jewish people that the Israelites had rejected the Messiah that had been promised all along. And as a result, these people are angry. These people are mad. In fact, other translations say that they were cut to the heart, which means that the Holy Spirit actually convicted them. Now, we see the same language used earlier in the book of Acts, that these people were cut to the heart and they repent, they believed and they were baptized. But this group, they were cut to the heart and they neglected. They resisted against the work of the Holy Spirit and they were literally enraged against Stephen so much so that here they are stoning him. I think it's kind of interesting to note that the description used of these people is that they were enraged and they were grinding or they were gnashing their teeth, which is the same description that Jesus gives the picture of hell. These people that are weeping and the gnashing of teeth. In other words, this group of people were hellbound in a sense. In fact, the same word that we see later in the text as they're running towards Stephen is the same Greek word used for the herd of swine that, that uh, Jesus cast out the demons out of legion into the swine and they ran off the cliff. That is the same word used for this group of people as they are pressing in and they are accusing and they are attacking Stephen. This was certainly a difficult, a hard moment as Stephen is being stoned. Stephen would go on to be the first martyr of the church. But I want to use this text tonight to give us an opportunity to talk about suffering. 
how to deal with suffering. For this martyrdom of Stephen, since then, 700 million Christians have been martyred for their faith. Jesus' promise that we would experience tribulation is true. Now, I don't have to convince you of that, though. Every person in this room has experienced suffering to a degree. All of us, regardless of the varieties of suffering or how horrendous the suffering, we all understand and have experienced a closeness to suffering. And so how do we do, deal with it? Well, the first thing I want you to notice tonight is that in the midst of suffering, conviction helps us see clearly. We see this in the life of Stephen. Now, Albert Mueller, a seminary president, pastor, author, he writes a ton of great stuff on the topic of conviction. And he says this. He says, put simply, a conviction is a belief of which we are thoroughly convinced. I don't mean that we're merely believe that a given set of statements is true, but that we are convinced that these truths are essential and life changing. We live out these truths and are willing to die for these truths. This is conviction. Deep-seated belief. And Stephen undoubtedly was a man of conviction. He was willing and able to endure suffering because he was thoroughly convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's raised from the grave, and that the same resurrection that was given to Jesus is promised to you and to I. He was a man of deep conviction. He truly did believe in the gospel and in his Savior. And since then, as I mentioned, 70 million Christians have joined him. You don't just die a martyr because you might believe. No, martyrs die martyrs because they do believe. They have a deep-seated conviction. Now, the Bible also refers to this deep-seated conviction as faith. According to Acts chapter 6, verse 5, Stephen was a man full of faith. He was a man full of belief. Now, if you remember, the Greek word for faith in the original Greek language is the word paisis, which literally means to persuade, which is actually really good news. We've done a whole series on this before about faith, is that faith isn't something that we have to muster up inside of us. No, faith is actually a response to God persuading us. That word to persuade, God divinely persuades us by his word that we may then place our faith in him. Therefore, faith is a response. So it wasn't that Stephen had something special in being full of faith. No, it's that the Holy Spirit had persuaded him of the truth of who Jesus was and he responded without resistance and he had faith in his God. This is deep-seated conviction. How does this happen? Again, it happens as we listen to the word of God. Remember, Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Therefore, as we read God's word or we listen to the teaching of God's word, God is then persuading and convincing us to believe in him. And our response then is faith. Our response is to trust in him. It's to believe in him. Divine persuasion. So to be someone who is full of faith is to be someone who is thoroughly convinced of God's word. And we see this 
in the life of Stephen. He's recorded as being a man full of faith in Acts chapter 6. And then in Acts chapter 7, we see that he was a man that was full of the word. He literally, quote, all throughout the scriptures, he understands and has a biblical worldview and idea of all the Old Testament scriptures and the promises of the Messiah. He proves that he really was a man full of the word, a man full of faith. And we can experience that same faith. You see, through the course of this message, we might be tempted to look at Stephen as the superhero of this story. As the sort of model that we have to look up to. And that's not the point of this sermon. It's not the point of this story. The point of the story is to see that Stephen, in fact, was just an ordinary man that was living an extraordinary life because he was empowered by an extraordinary God. And he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was persuaded by the word. Therefore, because we see that this man was so empowered by the Holy Spirit, that same power is given or is accessible to you and to I tonight. Therefore, he's not just a model. No, he's an inspiration of what it can be if we are persuaded by God to totally trust in him. The Holy Spirit is really the superhero of this entire story. But undoubtedly, Stephen was a man of conviction. Here I want to pause for a moment and I want to bring us into the story. I want us to to come into the story and to recognize maybe in our own lives whether or not we are men and women of conviction. Are we persuaded by the Holy Spirit? That same offer is given to us. We have the same access to the Holy Spirit as Stephen did. So the question is, are we thoroughly convinced that God is who he said he is? Are we willing to die, so to speak, for the scriptures? Are we willing to die for our Savior? Do we really believe what we say we believe? Now, this is a hard question for me to answer. It's a hard question for us to answer, to be truly honest with ourselves. What if we were put in that situation? And as I look at the American church right now, there's a trend toward the opposite of conviction. Now, listen, I'm sympathetic for those that are doubting. I'm sympathetic for that. Every single one of us doubt. Every single one of us go through different, difficult moments where it's difficult to believe in the promises of God. But rather than conviction being something that's honored, it seems as if conviction is something that's dishonored. That men and women of conviction are not highly esteemed. But guess what? I want to be a man of conviction. I want to be a man that is so thoroughly convinced of God's word that I am willing to die for it. Because I believe that it's truth. Because I believe that Jesus is who he says he is when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So are we men and women of conviction? See, to be a man or a woman of conviction means that there is a consistency between what we believe or what we say we believe and what we actually believe. Or what we say we believe and how we actually act. Now, if we say we believe in the power of prayer, do we pray? Now, these are questions I'm asking myself. If I'm really a man that believes in the power of prayer, why don't I pray more? Maybe because in the inner, in the very core of who I am, I'm not as thoroughly convinced as I might confess that I am. No, this deep-seated conviction means that I am so persuaded by God's word and what I say I believe that I am acted to do it. So a man or a woman of conviction is someone who says they believe and then they pray. 
Someone who is a man or a woman of conviction is someone who believes that the gospel is the power of God unto a salvation and then actually goes and preaches the gospel. But if we don't actually ever share the gospel, then the question comes to myself and to us, do we actually believe what we say we believe? Or do we really believe that God is always with us? Then that would determine how we act in private. That it would also determine when we feel low or we feel alone. Are we believing that God is with us? Now, all, all of this, again, is not for us to feel guilty. But to ask those deep questions. Are we men and women of conviction? Surely, Stephen was a man of conviction. Now, I'm not advocating perfection here. Don't get me wrong. I'm advocating conviction, believing that God is who he says he is and trusting in him. In the midst of suffering, conviction helps us see clearly. What do I mean by that? Well, as we see Stephen was about to be sown, he gazes up into heaven and he saw the very glory of God. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen is given this great vision as he gazes up into heaven. But I would note that it was his conviction that caused him to look in the first place. It was because he believed and he trusted in his Savior caused him to look up. And as he looked up, he had this heavenly vision of Jesus standing and welcoming him in. And so in this vision, before he gets this sight of Jesus welcoming in, he'd already believed it. Which reminds me of the scriptures when it says we are called to walk by faith and not by sight Stephen was first a man of faith before he was a man of sight. Charles Spurgeon commenting on this scripture, he says this. He says, whether or not Stephen saw literally with his eyes the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of God, we do not know. It is possible that what is meant here is that his faith became so unusually strong that he had the most clear and vivid sense of Christ reigning in heaven. So much so that it might be fitly said that he actually saw the Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of God. If it really was a supernatural vision, you and I have no grand ground to expect a repetition of it. But if it were a vision of faith, as I think it was, there is no sort of reason why we should not enjoy it even now. End quote. From the Prince of, Pre- Prince of Preachers himself. So it was Stephen's faith, his deep-seated conviction, that in a sense enabled him to see this great vision. That, it, that enabled him to have the ability to endure suffering in the face of great difficulty. To endure what was before him. Now I think when we're really honest with ourselves, we would like it the reverse. We want to see God do a great miracle. We want to see a great vision. And then if God shows himself, and then if God proves himself, then I'll be willing to lay it all down for him. See, oftentimes we get it in reverse. We want to see God do great things and then we'll get serious for him. But that's not the way God works. We walk by faith, not by sight. As we're persuaded by God of who God is, then we will begin to see God move because we will have the eyes to see. This is what we see in the life of Stephen. And so here is Stephen Facing suffering, 
He's a man of conviction. This conviction helps him see clearly. And in the midst of suffering, when we suffer, conviction can help us see clearly. Because what is the questions that we often ask when we're suffering? God, why is this happening? Do you love me? Don't you even care, God? Where are you, God? And those questions can destroy us. But when we have conviction, when we truly believe the scriptures for what they say they are, what does conviction do? Conviction reminds us of his love. Conviction helps us see clearly through the tragedy that God still loves us. Conviction tells us that God is able to bring beauty from ashes. Conviction reminds us of 2 Corinthians 5.17 when we read, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Conviction reminds us that to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Conviction reminds us of Psalm 34, 18, when we read the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Conviction reminds us of 1 Peter 5, 7, when we read cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for us. Conviction, believing the scriptures for what they say, prepares us for suffering. It helps us see clearly through the fog. When everything seems to be falling apart, conviction reminds us that God is seating on the throne. And in this case, he's standing on the throne. Why? Because he cares for Stephen. God cares for us. This is what conviction reminds us of. And we see this actually in the life of Jesus. As we reflect on Passion Week, On Thursday of Passion Week, Jesus is there with his disciples at the Passover meal. And then they exit into the Garden of Gethsemane. And oftentimes, as we do, Good Friday, we'll talk about the horrific suffering of Jesus on the cross. But before that physical suffering and the spiritual torment of the cross came great suffering in the garden. If you remember in the garden, we read that Jesus was agonizing, that he was sorrowful to the point of death, that he's sweating great drops like blood, that he's crying out to God three times, asking the father, my God, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. He's asking for God to remove the father, to remove the cup of judgment and wrath that he was able to drink. And he is in the midst of great difficulty and suffering. But then he remembers And he lays down and he surrenders to the will of the Father. Not my will, but your will be done. And out of the thick of that suffering, we read this in Matthew 26, verse 45. He says, see, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. In other words, he remembers why he was there. He remembered that God has had a plan for that suffering, that the father was going to bring him through that suffering. This conviction of knowing that the father was sovereignly in control of the situation helped Jesus in the midst of this suffering in his humanity to see clearly that he was headed to the cross. Conviction can help us see clearly in the midst of suffering. This also brings us to our second point tonight, that in the midst of suffering, we can have confidence in God's sovereignty. We can have confidence in God's sovereignty. We see this in verse 59. Read it again with me. As Stephen, we're reading, he says, as they were stoning Stephen, literally, Stephen's being stoned, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now remember, he just had this heavenly vision, but what a confident prayer. 
echoing the prayers of Jesus when Jesus is there on the cross and he commits his spirit to the father. Here, Stephen is just as confident that the father was going to receive him. He was confident in God's sovereignty. And I think it's important to note that Stephen understood that he wasn't being received because of his great courage of standing before the people. He wasn't being received because of his great service. No, he was being received because of his great God and the great love that his God had for him. And because of the righteousness that he had received, he had great confidence that God would receive him. And he had great confidence that now was the time he had confidence in God's sovereignty. He doesn't call out a legion of angels, just as Jesus did it in the garden. No, here, just like Jesus, in a sense, he surrenders himself to the sovereignty of the Father. You see, the gospel tells us that Christ is with us in the midst of our suffering. That he is always with us in suffering and that in fact, in suffering, he draws even closer to us. Just as we looked at that promise from Psalm 34, that the Father, that God is near to the brokenhearted. Now we understand that theologically, God is with us all the time. Amen? God is here in this room by His Spirit. He is with us when two or more are gathered by His name. He is here. But in suffering, He draws even closer. He draws even closer to be with us. This is what Stephen experiences. He has great confidence then in God's presence and in God's sovereignty. Which brings us to this great point that God's sovereignty shouldn't be there to confuse us, but it should comfort us. The sovereignty of God isn't to confuse us, it's to comfort us. That God is in fact in control, that he is in fact there and that he welcomes us in in the midst of suffering, that he is with us. Stephen had great confidence in the father in this moment, so much so that he knows that Jesus was going to receive his spirit. And it reminds us just of Jesus there in the garden in Passion Week. As he prays that prayer three times, but then he ends it. It's not my will, but your will be done. In the midst of suffering, Jesus models that for us. That we can have great confidence in the sovereignty of God. That he is there. That he is going to bring us through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus says there in the garden in Matthew chapter 26 verse 42. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will will be done. He surrenders to the sovereignty of God in the situation. Thirdly, we see in the life of Stephen that in the midst of suffering, we cannot lose a heart of compassion. We've looked at conviction. We've looked at confidence. Now we see that in the midst of suffering, we cannot lose a heart of compassion. Read with me again in verse 60 when we read, and falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. In other words, he was dead. You see, suffering has the ability to either break us or to build us up. Suffering has the ability to either embitter us or to empower us to experience the presence of God. Suffering can make us callous or it can make us close to Jesus. That choice is ours. 
But as we see in the life of Jesus, we see in the life of Stephen that in suffering, we can't lose that heart of compassion. Stephen had that understanding. He had the understanding that if Jesus was going to experience suffering, then he too would experience suffering. In fact, it was Jesus who said on that final night with the disciples in John 15, 20, he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. As we've already noted, persecution is promised. And we have to remember, as I'm sure Stephen did in this moment, that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against the principalities and the powers of this world. That is how Stephen, like Jesus, was able to stay with the heart of compassion in the midst of suffering. Confident in the words of his master, confident in the power of the Holy Spirit, he was able to stand there in the face of, of adversity. And it reminds us once again of Jesus there on the cross, where he says almost the same exact words Stephen repeats when Jesus is literally being crucified in front of the entire crowd and he yells from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Real quick, do you guys remember or do you know what it would take for Jesus to actually say one of those statements from the cross? Jesus, as he was being crucified, crucifixion was actually a form of, what's the word? He would be dying by uh, suffocation. Thank you. He, He wouldn't be able to breathe because his lungs and his body wouldn't be able to breathe. And so imagine this, this tent spike, this railroad spike between his feet, between his arms, his back that's bloody and open, the rugged cross in order for him to say those words. Jesus would have to press up on that spike. Just think for a second of that pain. Think for a second of the nerves in his foot as that railroad spike is shifting. He would have to stand up on that. Now think then of his back that's bloody and open and scourged, rubbing against the wooden rugged cross. And then he would have to exhale what he was choking on, inhale, And then speak one of the words and statements of the cross. He went through all of that agonizing pain to say those words that would echo to us, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He remained in that heart of compassion, even in the midst of suffering. And as we close tonight, this message, it could be a challenge And I don't want us to think that that man, we might look at a message like this and be like, man, I don't have this type of conviction. I don't have that type of confidence in God in the midst of suffering. And I definitely don't have compassion for other people. I want us to understand that all of this that we see in Stephen, all of this that we see in the life of Jesus, this all comes by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working in us that produces this sort of passion or this ability to endure suffering. It's not something that you have to dig up and you have to muster and just power on through it. No, that's not the idea here. That's definitely not what Stephen was doing. Just take it. That's not the attitude. 
No, the attitude was that they were being so filled with the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit was able to produce this perseverance in this and given this heavenly perspective of what is to come, understanding that this momentary affliction truly is nothing in comparison to the eternal way of glory that is set before them. And so if you're suffering in any capacity tonight, if you're suffering in any capacity, in any variety of suffering, remember it's the Holy Spirit that produces this in us. In fact, many Pentecostal uh, scholars back in the day, they would say that, that that spirit, that baptism of fire that we prayed for at the beginning of the series, that the Holy Spirit would come upon us, that that baptism of fire was, yes, for the empowerment of the work of the ministry, but it was also a baptism of suffering. For fire throughout the pages of scripture is always a purifying work. And as we pray for the baptism of the power of the Holy Spirit to be working in our lives, we must expect tribulation and then we must rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to get through those moments. To ask the Holy Spirit to make me a man or a woman of conviction. Help me to believe in the midst of this. Help me to be confident in your sovereignty in this situation. Help me to stay and remain a person of compassion. It is only the Holy spirit that produces these things in the life of the believer but really before we close the closing to the closing i want you to understand this is that the perspective of suffering that the bible gives is that it's really difficult it really is hard hebrew says that jesus was tempted that he suffered in the ways that we are and he sympathizes with our with us in our weaknesses he sympathizes he's not saying up in heaven suck it up and get through it no he sympathizes with us and it is only the christian worldview of suffering that allows for god who suffered See, we have a sympathizing God because we have a God who suffered. He suffered alongside us. He gets us. He's with us in it. But also he will bring something out of it. God always has a way. This isn't the Christian bow over suffering. No, it's the reality that out of the ashes that suffering is, it is only the hand of God that brings beauty out of it. For death is the precursor to resurrection life. If we want to experience the resurrection life of Jesus working in us, we must be prepared to die. We must be prepared to face suffering, to pick up our cross and follow after him. But that is only for a moment in comparison for what is to come. Now, even in this story right here, even this account of Stephen being martyred, what this did is it caused the early church then to scatter. They scattered all around to the different surrounding areas, which is in fact what Jesus told them to do before he ascended. Remember he said that the, that the power would come from on high so that you could then be witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the world. Well, what comes after Acts chapter 7 is Philip taking the gospel into Samaria in Acts chapter 8. Literally, the death 
of Stephen, God brought beauty out of ashes. He caused the early church to scatter abroad and then take the gospel to the surrounding nations, to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles and on into us. All because of the death of Stephen. Not only that, but as we read here in Acts chapter 7, the person that all of these garments' feet were laid upon was Saul. And then here from Acts 7 to Acts chapter 8, let me just read this to you. In Acts 8, 1, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But that same Saul, because of a prayer of Stephen, God don't hold it against them, would become the great apostle Paul. God is able to bring beauty out of ashes. He's able to inject purpose into pain. He is able to use suffering for his greater glory. So if you are experiencing suffering today, be refreshed that God is with you in the midst of it. That he's going to see you through the other side. And that eventually, I know this isn't the best promise in the midst of suffering, But God is able to use it. That's the truth of the power of what our God is able to do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this, these scriptures and the reality that out of the greatest moment of suffering, the cross, you truly did bring the greatest glory. That sinners like us would be saved, rescued, and ransomed. Jesus, I pray for your people that are in this room right now. that may be going through a degree of suffering. Father, I pray that they would sense your closeness, that they would sense the proximity of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would convince them of the scriptures, that you truly are near to the brokenhearted, that you will walk with them through the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, I pray that you would bring great comfort for them. I pray for those that have experienced great suffering and that may be ashamed of that suffering for whatever reason. God, I pray that you would encourage them that you desire to comfort others with the comfort in which they received in that suffering. God, I pray that you would bring purpose to that pain in a sense, that you would bring an opportunity for them to share how you brought them through that difficult time in that difficult moment. And Jesus, I pray that we would be a church that would be in a sense so full of your spirit that we would not run from suffering and difficulty, but that we would trust in you through it and that we would then be a testimony to the world around us because we are able to suffer well because you are with us. Jesus, we thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. And in Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. As we close tonight, as we close out this series, 
talked about power. We've talked about prayer, priorities, and now passion. I want to encourage you to stand. And as we sing this song, there's another in the fire. If you are going through any type of suffering in any degree, whether it's financial stress, whether it's relational suffering, whether it's physical illness, whatever it is, whatever season, whatever type of suffering, would you exercise that faith in a sense to close your eyes as this song is being sung over you? And literally imagine Jesus right there with you in the midst of it, because he is. Let's sing out praises to him.